Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we do thank you for the conversions among us, Lord, as you are opening eyes of the blind and helping them to see their need for you. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And we know, Lord, as we gather here this morning, Lord, that we're gathering in your presence. And I just think to Isaiah 6, where um, Isaiah had seen that vision of you, Lord, that you were sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and your train of your robe filled the whole temple, and the angels flew around you and cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, full of glory. And Lord, we know that as we gather as your people this morning, that we are gathering in your very presence. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray as Isaiah that you would convict of sin, that we would say, woe is me, for I am a a man or a woman that is unclean in your sight, but then also applying the beauty of the gospel to us as you did to Isaiah with that coal on his lips to to make him clean, Lord. We pray that you would both show us um, the law, but you would show us your grace and show us our cleanliness before you in your son, Lord. We pray that nobody would leave this room without having that experience with you through your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we're going to finish out our series. We've been in a series in the Proverbs on relationships, and uh, we've been looking at a whole bunch of different relationships. We got it online if you want to look at that, listen to that. Um, But this week we're going to look at our relationship to the poor. So an unusual one, you might think, but a very common topic in Proverbs. And we're also going to appoint our very first deacon. So that's going to be super exciting. Came on a good morning. Um, But when we think about our relationship to the poor, it's tricky, you know, you might say, well, what's your relationship with the poor? It's complicated, right? It's hard to know exactly how to render aid. We all know that it's one of the most common commands in the Scripture is to give to the poor. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, he says, where do we find a command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms or in a more urgent manner than the command to give to the poor? And yet we know that there's a trickiness to that, right? We have to try and figure out how much do we give? You know, who do we help? How do we help them? Because we know that there's ways to quote-unquote, help that actually harm people. They could, they could leave them in a worse situation. And so we need wisdom, and that's why this morning we're going to look at what the Proverbs say about our relationship to the poor. And then we're going to look at how did the apostles work this out in a New Testament context? How do they work out the responsibility of us as God's people toward the poor? And it's through deacons. And so we'll look at that too. So first thing we might want to ask is, why do, why do people end up poor? You know, why, why does poverty exist? What causes poverty? And our culture really has two main uh, views on this, and most of us will kind of lean towards one or the other. We could call them kind of the con- uh, politically conservative view of poverty or the politically liberal view of poverty, and, um, and Christians can have either one. The liberal view would tend to see the, the poor as righteous, that the poor are generally righteous people that are, um, through no fault of their own, have gotten into poverty because of societal sins, not personal sins. That would be the emphasis of those of us who lean more of a liberal way um, politically, as we'll say, you know, it's about societal sins, it's not about personal sins. Societal sins like systemic injustice and racism and prejudice and oppression. The, the, the liberal view would say that mostly people are poor because the powerful, politically, um, economically, legally, which are all usually the same people, have taken advantage of the vulnerable. And so that view would be that the poor are basically righteous but oppressed by institutional sins. 
The conservative view on the other side would say that most people are in poverty or poor as a result of individual sins. It's not oppression, it's individual sins. And, you know, you can kind of feel how you tend to look when you see a particular case. Um, they would believe that people are poor mainly because either their own sin or their parents' sin. They would emphasize, you know, the breakdown of the family and things like that. They'd say, you know, it's either their sin that got them poor or it's, you know, maybe their parents' sin um, that got them poor. The conservative view is that poverty is mostly due to laziness, addiction, foolishness, and perhaps fatherlessness, right? That the poor are, unri- they are unrighteous and experience consequences of either their own sin or their family's sin. And what's interesting about those two views, you might say, well, which one's right? What's interesting about those two views is when you read the Proverbs, you could find evidence for both, right? You could find evidence for both the politically liberal view or the politically conservative view. You could imagine a, a politically liberal Christian and a politically conservative Christian kind of debating, you know, about poverty and what, what, why are people poor. You could imagine that politically liberal Christian saying, what about Proverbs twenty-two sixteen? Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth. Uh, or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. You see the word oppression, and you see oppression over and over again emphasized not just in Proverbs, but in, um, in, the, uh, in the prophetic literature. Or what about Proverbs 28.3, which says, a poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. So you could say, well, like, you know, the, the rich oppose, uh, uh, oppress the poor, but also the poor oppress the poor. You can think, you know, once people get caught in that cycle and they end up living in places where there's more poverty, that there's a, victim, a victimization that happens even in those places. Um, that politically liberal Christian can say, what about Proverbs 19.4, which says, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends, Right? Uh, that passage would say that there's kind of a slippery slope. Once you start to lose, you lose funds and lose ability to take care of yourself, that you become more and more despised by society and, and not cared for. Or what about Proverbs 19.6? Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. But all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but they do not have him. You might think, well, the reason why there's poverty is because we have a a callous, uncaring society that that leads to more and more poverty. The the haves have more and the have-nots have less. You can imagine that politically, you know, liberal Christian going like slapping his conservative friend on the shoulder and going, see, the Bible proves my point, right? But you could hear right after that the politically conservative Christian saying, well, not so fast. What about Proverbs 6.10? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, like an armed man. And you'd go like, see, it's laziness. They're lazy. That's the problem. Or that conservative, uh, politically conservative Christian might say something like Proverbs uh, 13.8. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, and whoever heeds reproof is honored. It's like, see, it's foolishness. That's the cause of poverty. Or he might point out Proverbs 23.20. Do not be among drunkards or gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come into poverty, and the slumber will be clothed in rags, right? And he might say, see, the Bible says that people are poor because of addiction, and drunkenness, and gluttony, right? And we could go back and forth like that. You could imagine these two Christians arguing like that. You might ask yourself, like, well, why does the Bible give both of these? You know, why does it give both of these answers to this common problem? And guys, it's because the reason why the Bible doesn't just give one, or the Proverbs don't just give one, is the Proverbs is a book of wisdom. The Proverbs is a book about the way the world really is, okay? It wants to give us wisdom, and it doesn't just want to back our ideologies, right? We all kind of grab an ideology, whether it's more on the liberal side or conservative side, and we like those. You know why we like them? Because they're simple. We like the world to be simple. We like to have one answer to complex problems, don't we? 
and we like it to be simple. And so um, we adopt a very simple view of poverty, and then every piece of experience or data we try to cram into our narrow ideology, you know, and build it as our case. And then, and then you got on Facebook, right? And then you post a bunch of stuff that makes other, the other side look stupid, right? And then you argue and you're angry and all these kinds of things, right? That's pretty typical. Welcome to 2018. But the Proverbs, guys, and the Bible as a whole isn't interested in justifying our ideologies. It wants to show us the way the world really is. And the world is actually complex, not simple. People are complex, not simple. People's problems are complex, not simple. Most people that find themselves in poverty, it's a combination of factors, right? It's not a one, you know, it's this or it's that. It's we need wisdom. And so as we look at the Proverbs, what we're asking for from God is wisdom to know that in any particular case, how do we show mercy to this person in a way that's really going to benefit them? Because if you come with a one-size-fits-all, you're not going to really be merciful and show love to people in a way that actually helps them. And so I was actually pulled both ways as I was studying the Proverbs. You know, I was going from like, okay, it's the righteous poor. You know, it's all, that's what Proverbs talks about is the poor, they're righteous and they need to be helped. And then on the other hand, there was the unrighteous poor and, you know, sins that can lead to poverty. And I was going back and forth. And I don't know if you guys realize how I do this, but typically I preach expositionally. So I'll grab, you know, four verses, five verses, ten verses, whatever it is, maybe a chapter, and just go right through that text, right? Well, Proverbs usually can't do that. Like last week we could, but in general we can't do that because they're scattered all over, right? Somebody said Proverbs is like, is like the Twitter of the Bible, right? There's like little pithy statements. So what you do if you're going to do a series on the Proverbs, you go, okay, we're new on speech. I'm going to read all the Proverbs on speech, compile them, distill them, try and figure out how they could form something that isn't just like Twitter, right? That has a body to it, and then you do a message. Um, but that's tricky. It's tricky because a topical message like that, you can easily be skewed. And that kind of happened to me while I was prepping this. So what I did first is I read through all the Proverbs and kind of put a star next to each one that seemed to relate to this message. And then I did a search. And so I searched the poor, made a list. And then the next one, I searched poverty and made a list. Well, when I was doing the first list of the poor, almost all of those guys had a very positive view of the poor. And we're mainly saying that the poor are victims of injustice and we're to stand with them and God stands with them, right? And so I could have had a certain type of message if I stopped there. Then I did a search of poverty, and poverty is almost all in verses that are warnings to us. Don't do this, you'll end up in poverty. It was so weird that they ended up that way, but that's the way they ended up. So I'm being pulled back and forth, right? And I'm trying to see, like, what is the Proverbs really saying about the poor? And, you know, you could just see it's a dangerous thing to preach topically because you, if you took one of those, you could just give a whole message on, you know what, it's all injustice and, you know, nobody's ever poor for their own, you know, reasons. Or you could have another one on the other side and saying, like, you know, the poor are all just gluttonous eaters of meat and all this stuff. You know what I mean? It could be a different kind of message. But when you look at it in biblical balance, what's interesting is, is that the Proverbs, one, they warn us against sinful patterns that result in poverty. Okay? They, result, they, they warn us about sinful patterns that will result in poverty. And then the Proverbs say that we need to take care of those who are in poverty. So those are the two big themes throughout. And what's really fascinating as I was looking through Proverbs is to see God's relationship to the poor in Proverbs. You say, what's God's relationship to the poor? And, and this is what I found. God identifies with the poor. Proverbs 14, 31 says this. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, and he who is generous to the needy honors him. Isn't that interesting? God identifies with the poor. If you insult the poor, God takes it personally. 
He associates with the poor. And I was reading uh, this Sri Lankan scholar. I won't even try to pronounce his name. It's crazy. I tried it last night. But um, he said that in the ancient world, virtually all religions, the gods associated with the powerful. Right? So throughout all ancient religions in general, the the gods associate with the powerful, which kind of makes sense. So it's the kings, it's the priests, it's the rich. Those are the people that have the special connection with God. Kind of makes sense because if you need to build a temple or you want some really nice sacrifices, probably those are the ones to cozy up with, right? So it kind of makes sense that we'd invent religions like that. But he said the Bible is unique because in the Bible you see a rival vision. You see that it's not the high-ranking males, but the poor whom Yahweh stands with. Throughout the Old Testament, God says, I identify with the poor, with the powerless, um, with those who are, are oppressed. So God identifies with the poor. Secondly, God himself defends the poor. You guys really should see this. Proverbs 17, 5 says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, once again, identifying with him, right? But he defends them too. He who is glad at their calamity will not go unpunished. Isn't that interesting? God not only identifies with the poor, he defends the poor. This one's really powerful. Proverbs 22, 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crushed the afflicted at the gate for the Lord, Yahweh, will plead their cause. And listen to this. And rob of life those who rob the poor. That's pretty scary, huh? Like he defends them. You could think about different practices in our culture that, that, that rob the poor. You might think of like redlining, you know, only giving loans the, that are in certain areas of the city and things like that. Um, or practices, uh, there was a really interesting story I heard just this week about a Christian who was in the car business. And, you know, typical car business, people come in and there's kind of this like totally fictitious price and then you haggle on this and you get it down to a certain amount. And what he found in his car dealership, and which most people know, is that it was Anglos and men and people that had means that usually got the best prices. It was usually Anglos, men, and people that had money that got the best prices. So it was usually minorities, people that had less money, and women that paid more going out the door. And here he is a Christian and he's like, I'm oppressing the poor, just in my system here. And so he changed it. He was one of the first guys to go, you know what, there's a straight price. You know, this is what it's going to be. You know, take it or leave it. Everybody pays the same. Isn't that cool? It's really cool. But God defends the poor. God calls his people to alleviate the needs of the poor. Look at Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to, to Yahweh, and he will repay his deeds. I love that one. Whoever lends to the poor lends to God, and he will repay his deeds. God's saying, I'm good for it. You know, feel free to make that loan. Feel free to give that gift. I'm good for it. God himself, he calls us to do that. Guys, God calls himself the defender of the poor. Throughout the Old Testament, he calls himself that. And when his people um, are merciful and generous to the poor, what we do is we reflect who he is to the world. I mean, here God says he's the defender of the poor. And when his people actually do that, we reflect who he is to the world. We call that glorifying him. We don't add to his glory in any way. What we do, we're like a mirror on a 45-degree angle, and God's glory shines down on us and out to the world. When we live the way he's called us to live here by the power of the Spirit, what happens is is people see how God really is. He's reflected in our lives. And they see that God is indeed the defender of the poor as they see his people being merciful and generous. And it's a huge, I mean, if you guys did a study and you went through the whole Bible and looked for every command that had to do with generosity of the poor, it would be overwhelming. I mean, just think of all the ones in the Old Testament, all the ones in the prophets, all of the ones that Jesus talked about. Talk about a theme. 
If you guys, like, lost that theme, if you go through the Gospels, one of the most common things is that God is calling his people to be generous to the poor. You, you read um, James, you know, and even in that section where we're debating faith and works and all that stuff, what's the work? Generosity to the poor. Sometimes we miss that. We have this huge theological debate, and we, we miss that the work that he's calling to is generosity to the poor. This, guys, was a core value in the Old Testament people of God. And what's really cool is they have it written into their law. So you guys realize that the people would tithe their money to the, the, the priests, right? And they would use that for the temple and all the sacrifices and stuff. But every third year, the entire tithe of the nation went to the storehouse to put funds in for the poor. So they gave a third of the temple system to the poor. They also had laws about gleaning. I love the gleaning laws. So it was like, you know, if you're a farmer, you couldn't actually harvest your whole field. You would leave some of it there for the poor to come and harvest. And it was a really cool program because, one, you're being generous to them, but also, two, they're working for it. So they get the dignity of going out and working. We see in the book of Ruth, they get the dignity of going out and working, and yet it's guaranteed that it'll be there for them. Uh, gleaning. And um, there was the sabbatical year, right? So every seven years, they had to cancel debts. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a, a country that cared about the poor. Every seven years. So like that sixth year, you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to make this loan. But every seventh year, right? And they, they actually warned against that, thinking that way, because they know how we are. But every seventh year, they would cancel debts. Every 49th year, so every seventh seven there would be the year of Jubilee, because what would happen is in poverty is eventually, you know, you lose your land, and that was the thing you didn't want to lose. Your land was, was the thing you handed down to your family, and once you lose your land, you're probably not getting land back, right? And so every uh, 49 years, there, there would be a year of Jubilee where, where they would receive their land back. The family got their land back. Isn't that awesome? It's just amazing. That was all built into their laws because of care for the poor. Craig Bloomberg says this about the year of Jubilee. Here, if ever, is the ultimate revitalization of private property. On average, every person or family had at least a once-in-a-lifetime chance to start fresh, no matter how irresponsibly they'd been in handling their finances or how far they had fallen into debt. There was a, a compassion built into that. There was a, it is also a core value of the New Testament church. We see that in the book of Acts. Let's not miss that, like, in chapter 4, it, it's talking about in 432, it said, Now when the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, no one said that anything they had belonged to himself, but they had everything in common. And they go on to describe that richer people would sell land, and they would give the money to the apostles, and then they would distribute that money among the poor, whoever had need. I mean, this was a normal thing in the early church. This was a core value. And, of course, they had to be wise about it. We see in the book of Proverbs that the reason why people might be in distress is multifactorial. They needed to make sure that they're giving responsibly to people and really helping them, not feeling like they're helping, but really making their situation worse. And so you see in Paul's letters, there's, there's sections that say, these are the widows that we take care of. And here are the stipulations. There was a whole system. You know, a lot of times we just lose sight of how big care for the poor was in the New Testament church. It's huge. I mean, Paul's letters, he's writing to Timothy or somebody saying, hey, by the way, you know, we need to tighten this up. These are the widows that should have help. And those ones, you need to take 100% care of them. This is what you need to do. It was a huge part of what the church did. We looked in uh, Galatians 2, and when you, had, uh, when you had Peter and you had Paul and James, and they came into agreement, the one thing they said to each other after they made sure they agreed on doctrine was, make sure you take care of the poor. Core value of the early church. Really cool. So the New Testament church guys had two prongs of ministry. They had ministry of the word and they had ministry of mercy. But you know what? Having those two prongs of ministry, being really intense about mercy and word, almost destroyed them. You guys realize that? Having both of those types of ministry 
almost broke up the church. Because mercy ministry takes an immense amount of wisdom and time and care. It's not something you just, you know, you know, you have a car, you have a car. It's not like being on Oprah or something like you just hand things out. No, you need to know the person. You need to get close. You need to understand them. You need to really help them. And so it became hard to manage. And if you turn to Acts 6, go ahead and turn to Acts 6. We'll be there for a little bit. When you get to Acts 6, you see there's this exponential growth. After Pentecost, the church grows to 3,000. And then later it says they added 5,000 more. And it's just growing like crazy, right? And they're doing both ministry of the word and ministry of mercy. But then something happens. You know, there's, there's a disagreement. There's a disagreement about how widows are cared for. And pretty much the church is all Jewish at this point. It's led by the apostles. Um, but there's two different types of, of Jewish congregates. There's the ones that speak Hebrew, and there's the ones that speak Greek. The, they called them the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the ones that spoke Greek. They were Jewish. And the ones that spoke Hebrew that were also Jewish. And they were coming to the Lord in droves. And this massive growth created a problem. Take a look at verse 1 of Acts 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, uh-oh, a complaint by the Hellenists, which is the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews, this would be the Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were uh, being neglected in the daily distribution. You think, what a bummer, you know? The Acts is talking about it growing and everything's great, and all of us are like, oh, I'd love to live during that time. The church was perfect. No, it wasn't. A complaint arose. Does that happen in church? And then there arose a complaint. You're like, dun, 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 you know. And the complaint, it's a huge bummer. So what's happening here is that these, these Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews are saying, hey, you know what? Our widows don't seem to get cared for like the Hebrew-speaking widows do, right? And so this isn't a racial thing, but it is a, a, is a cultural thing with the language. And it was a scandal, you know. This was either guys going to divide the church or the apostles were going to have to divert a ton of their time to handling this, this situation, this mercy ministry. And so what do the apostles do? Look at verse 12. Or sorry, verse 2. The apostles say, It is not good that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. And what they're saying is we can't do everything, right? You know, we can't, we can't oversee the compassion ministry and do a good job with, with the, the, the needs of the poor and the widows among us. And, and so the uh, apostles are, are wrestling with this, and they're like, the one thing we're called to do is preach the word. One thing we're called to do is to preach and teach and pray. We have a ministry that God's called us to do. This thing, though, is super important, and if we don't solve it, there's going to be a huge problem. And, and, and so look at what they do. Look at their solution. You see it in verse 2. And the twelve summons the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we have appointed to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose, and then it lists the people they chose, and they prayed for them, and they laid hands on them. And God, and at that, on that day, God, through the apostles, created a whole new team of people to minister. And this was a ministry of mercy. So apostles had the ministry of the word, um, and these deacons had the ministry of mercy. And that freed up the apostles to like fully go after the word. And yet the ministry of mercy wasn't going to die, you know, because of that. It was actually going to be able to grow because you have these specialized leaders, right, that are devoted to this because it can grow this. Super cool thing, guys. There's a debate in the church um, with this whole thing of deeds and, wor and word or mercy and word or care for the poor and, and preaching. You know, some churches, you know, feel like, you know, we need to just focus on the word. The gospel is the only unique thing the church has in the, word, in the world. Uh, the poor can be taken care of elsewhere, which is true. 
but um, they will focus just on the word, and they will give very little time to mercy ministry. And then we see the other side, right, where churches will give all their resources to, you know, social justice and mercy and things like that, and pretty much the whole church moves that direction, and the, the word's real weak there because they're all about the deeds. Acts 6, guys, says that we don't have to choose. In fact, Acts 6 says we should never choose. That we should have both a thriving ministry of the word and a thriving ministry of mercy. You just need two teams. And so what evolved from that day was that there were two teams. The apostles later handed off the ministry of the word to elders or pastors. And so that's, that's one team, team of elders or pastors that would handle being devoted to the word and prayer. And another team that was devoted to the ministry of mercy. So yet now you have two-pronged ministries still, but you have two teams to lead those two ministries. And we see in Acts 6, they're not specifically called deacons in Acts 6, but in verse 2 when it mentions serving tables, that's the same word from where we get the term deacons. So most commentators believe that this was the beginning of a whole new type of leaders and people that were ministers of mercy. They just don't have the name yet. And deacons are really cool, guys. I'm super excited. I'm not a deacon, but I'm excited about deacon ministry. What do deacons do? We can see from Acts 6 that deacons are called to lead, to show the church's mercy in wisdom, because we saw from Proverbs, that's needed, right? In wisdom for the purpose of keeping us unified on mission. Because that's what could have happened. The church could have just fallen off the rails or it could have been split. Like, okay, we split over language now and then we split over. And we know about splitting, right? We know how to split. And so what they wanted to do is keep it unified on mission, um, have the ministry of mercy, but do it wisely. And, and when deacons do that, look at verse 7. This is what happens when deacons are brought on board to do that kind of ministry. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's so cool because the ministry of the word didn't shrink, it actually grew. It allowed the ministry of the word to grow, and even grew amongst really hard people. It says many of the priests, these are people that have a lot to lose. These are people that are employed as, as religious employees, right? And these were people that were coming to the Lord, and even despite the high cost. And yet, the ministry of mercy also was able to grow because you had specialists that were focusing on doing the ministry of mercy well. It's so cool. So that's what the model we see in the New Testament is we see two teams of leaders. You've got elders or pastors. Um, that's what the, 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 the apostles, they've died off. We don't have apostles anymore, but they handed over the ministry of the word to, to elders or pastors. Um, elders, um, and if you have questions about this, let me know. I've taught on this before, but elders can only be men. Um, they should be plural. Um, you see that throughout the New Testament. Every time the elders of the church are addressed, they're plural. We got into a weird thing. I don't know if it's an American thing. No, it's not before America. Of just thinking that there should be this one person. There's this one guy that leads the church, and it's this one elder or this one pastor. But actually, the New Testament model isn't that at all. It's a plurality. And so if you have questions about that, let me know, because I know that for a lot of you, that's new. But they, and, and so the, you've got the elders, and then you've got the deacons. Now, um, the deacons can be men or women. And I think if you have questions about that, let me know. I'd be happy to engage you on that. I have taught on that before. But um, there is evidence from the New Testament of that. Um, but the, the deacons are also to be plural. And they're charged with meeting the mercy needs of the church, the community, and even doing stuff outside the church. We see that in the example of Paul when he was raising money for churches in Jerusalem from the Macedonians. Is that the, the role of mercy in a particular church can extend out even internationally. And notice, guys, that the apostles asked the members of the church for recommendations of names. Isn't that cool? 
And so they didn't just decide. They asked for names. And we did that, actually. We did that last year around this time. I taught on elders and deacons. We took names. We got names for elders. Then we added uh, Josh and uh, David over there as elders to serve alongside me. And then we've been working since then to develop the deacons. And so the deacons we're going to announce today and bring forward, they were ones that the body had chosen, which is uh, super great. These are people that have been serving. And I'll just tell you who they are. So it's Mike Klein. Uh, Tim and Vanessa Marmon. So we're going to bring them up in a little bit. Not quite yet, because that'd be awkward. I'd make you stand up here for like 10 minutes, trying to look comfortable. But they've been serving as deacons, kind of secret deacons for a while. And I've mentioned them and kind of not mentioned their name, but kind of mentioned their name. But what were they doing? They were, they were, they were trying out the role. They were, they were living that role. And they've been doing that for at least a year now, where they've been actually living out that role. And they've done all kinds of things um, for the church so far to live out a deacon role. Make sure that's something they're called to. And we've been meeting as a whole church team. So the elders and deacons meet together for ministry that overlaps. We meet separately for our individual um, uh, things that we're called to do. And uh, the elders have the overall direction of the church, but the deacons are highly influential in giving input. And, um, and so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. Um, Tim and Vanessa, I'll tell you a little bit about them. They've been re- leading a small group in their, in their home for a long time. They're, they've been here since the beginning. Actually, um, they've been here. I've known them for, I don't know, 11 years or something. That is not a qualification for deacon. Like You're like, I'm called the deacon, but I can't wait 11 years. It won't take that long. But, uh, but we have known them a long time. And they have a small group in their home. They're going through James. Uh, they have a strong interest in helping people that are in financial distress or trying to get out of debt. That was Tim that was right up here. Um, he uh, helps people with budgets, so if any of you need like personal help to, to go, I don't even know how to do a budget, or you know, I feel like my finances are hopeless, he's great at going like, no, 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 this isn't hopeless. Let's, let's just put these in boxes, and it's going to take some discipline, but here's how we're going to right this ship. Um, he's been doing pre-marriage counseling for us, so when we have the session that's on finances, we have them go to them, because he is way better at that than I am. Um, he's leading that financial peace course, so I'd encourage you guys to get involved in that. Uh, Vanessa's been super helpful in all that, and uh, especially with the pre-marriage thing, but also she has been involved, too, in setting up meals. So we have a thing, you know, and it's good for you to know about this. It, there's somebody that knew, just had a baby or something like that. We want to arrange meals for them. That's one way that we can really practically care for them. We've done meals for people that also don't go to the church, so we've had some you know, a sister or a brother or somebody like that where their family needs meals because they're going through crisis or something. That's a way for our church to extend love to that family that doesn't even go to our church. So talk to her if you want to arrange something like that. Talk to her if you'd like to provide that kind of help um, because this is something that's all of us together. Um, she was helpful in providing help for memorial and, and things like that. Um, Tim and Vanessa and Mike have arranged a school drive. Remember when we did that? We, we told asked the school here, what do you guys need? And we rallied and got a whole bunch of stuff together. They did that. They did um, Thanksgiving and Christmas meals for needy families. We did some of that through the school, and that was in the Menifee community. So we could, you know, we had you guys bring like a, not an actual turkey, but like a certificate for a turkey, because that could be nasty. And, um, and then all the stuff, you know, for Thanksgiving, and then be able to give it as a church to them. Um, they did a homeless outreach. They did Operation Christmas Child. So there's a whole bunch of stuff they've already done, and they want to do more. If you've got ideas, if there's things that you'd be excited to do, but you feel like you need other people to gather around you to do it, talk to them. They would love to develop new ministry. And it's all about mobilizing us, right? It's not like they're do, like we don't need to worry about mercy. Those guys got it, you know? No, we're, we're, we're to be rallied by them. Um, Mike Klein, he's a, a CPA, and for a living, he audits nonprofits. 
So we should be clean that way, right? We have the auditor as a deacon. And so he audits nonprofits. He's the one that manages our books. He's the one that's developed the collection system, which is like super secure, where the the double counting and all that stuff to keep everything super secure. He developed all of our systems for that. Um, He has a longtime interest in international development, too, so not just what we could do here, but in other places. After he went to Berkeley, he did, I think, five months in Ghana, you know, doing development work there. And so um, he's also got a strong interest in connecting to uh, government resources. So you have somebody that comes for help, and we want to give them help. We want to give them financial help. But we'd also like to connect them to, like, is there a job placement thing that they don't know about or job training or something that, you know, we could use county resources or other ministries. And so uh, all the deacons are together compiling a notebook that they're going to have. Maybe it's digital. I don't know. I imagine it is a binder, but it's probably not. Where they're going to combine all the resources that are there. And that's something we could share with other churches. And uh, they're developing procedures. Um, They also um, have a benevolence fund that they have oversight over. So they don't ask the elders for money. They've got a benevolence fund that we're now, we're putting 10% of every offering into that until we get it nice and in full, and they'll have total uh, control over that. That's something they manage. They've been given the wisdom to do this. They have the gifting to do this. They run with it. And so on a Sunday morning, you might have somebody come to the church and say, hey, I need money for groceries, or I don't have gas to get home, or something like that. And they might come to me, and I'd say, you know, go to Tim, go to Mike, go to Vanessa, and what they would do is be able to meet that need right away. And so they will have, at that point, it's called the ministry of gift cards. So they would have, you know, gift cards, and I'm probably not like that, um, where they'd be able to say and meet that need right away because we want to just meet the need right away. Now, if a person has an ongoing need, they're going to meet with them, go through a process, and we're going to see what else do they need. You know, what's, we need to dig a little, see what the actual issue is here. Maybe there's something that we could help with, um, helping them to budget or steward. Maybe not. Maybe this is completely just catastrophic time for them. And then what we could do is, you know, they could connect us with us for counseling or support. They could connect um, those people, the people in the body that have skills. So say they're having a real bad car problem and we got somebody here that's a, a mechanic that could help them or their roof's leaking and got somebody that knows how to at least kind of patch that together for now, right? And they would know how to connect them to that. And so if you have those skills, actually, the deacons are going to be putting a survey out for you guys to put your skills, you know? Like, what is my skills? Like, bow staff. You know, I have ninja skills, you know, whatever it is. Be serious. Because what we want is a database so we can say, hey, go to this guy. He could take care of that problem. Like, you don't need to go to the mechanic. This one could, you know, he knows how to do this alternator thing. Whatever it is. Um, The deacons have a role also of rallying us to be merciful. Like I talked about all those things they did before. They're to rally us to do that, to organize us to do that, to equip us to do that. Um, One thing that they want to equip you to do right away is, um, I, mean, I think we're all seeing as we drive around, there's more, more and more homeless people that are asking for things and stuff like that. And so um, the deacons have put together a list for you guys. They're calling it an agape bag. If you use Greek, it's like, oh, well, it's an agape bag. This is good. <laughs> but um, on the back table right there, they have a sheet of things that you could pack together because I think we're all like this, right? So you're parked like, you know, just went into McDonald's or something. You're parked to leave and there's a guy like right here staring at you and you're like this. Like, I'm sorry, my neck only bends this direction, right? 
But if you were prepared, you could actually have something for them. This has got a Bible. This has got a whole bunch of helpful things in it. You know, antibacterial wipe thing. It's got like ibuprofen. It's got a whole bunch of things that could be helpful to a person. You're not going to harm a homeless person with this bag of stuff, right? There's a Bible in there. There's all kinds of great stuff in there. And you could put these together. And this is a great way to train your kids, right? to be merciful in a way that's very practical. And so they could be a part of packing this. And I'm assuming that Tim and Vanessa or, or Mike did not write this. You know, this looks like a child's writing. And that uh, gives them an option to, to do something. Maybe your kid could color a little picture or something like that. And then when you pull up to that and you see a homeless person, you're like, awesome, I've been looking for you. You know, let me give you this. And, you know, say a word about Christ to them as you give them something for them. You know, like we should be proactive. Every family, guys, should have a plan to be merciful, both in situations like that and then ongoingly. I just ask you guys, in your family, what is your vision for mercy ministry? Is there some international cause that you give to regularly? Is there some particular cause there out in the world that you're thinking, I want our kids praying about this. I want our kids giving to this. We're going to teach them how to be merciful to the poor. It's a part of discipleship. And so let's have these guys come up. So I want to have Mike Klein come up and Tim and Vanessa Marmon. And uh, we're going to pray for them. And uh, this is a big moment, you know, this is really cool because, you know, the New Testament talks about that there are two, you know, teams of leaders in the church, and it's super exciting to have these guys. And then, um, and Jen, could you come up too? We want to have Mike's wife come up too. We want to pray for you as well. And he can come too. Yeah, everybody can come. And then um, I asked some of you leaders to come up too, maybe lay hands on these guys and pray. And if, um, if you would like to um, pray along with me for these these guys, you could just put your hand out like this, you know, as if you're laying hands on them. But we're going to pray for them. Um, super excited to have them. I mean, how cool is it that God would provide such wonderfully gifted people for us um, to be able to minister alongside? We're just super excited for this moment. So um, let's pray. Father, we are so immensely thankful for your gift of the role of deacon and these particular deacons, Lord, that you would give us these people to minister alongside us is a massive gift. We pray that you would protect and bless their families. Lord, we know that as we serve in your church that we can become a bit of a target for the enemy, and we just pray you'd protect these families. We pray, Lord, that you would protect and bless their marriages, Lord. We want to be the kind of church that when people are involved in significant ministry as leaders of the church, that it is a blessing to their marriage, that it is a good thing to their families. We pray for their kids, that their kids would love growing up in this church, they would enjoy this church, and they would be so excited that their parents were involved in this kind of ministry, Lord, and that they would even grow up wanting to, to be in this sort of ministry of mercy. Lord, we pray for um, that you would bless us through them, that you would bless us through Tim and Vanessa and Mike, Lord, in these coming years. We pray, Lord, that we'd be a blessing to them, Lord. Help us to always be an easy people to lead. Lord, we do not want to be obstinate and difficult to our leaders. That would be of no benefit to us. We pray that they could lead with joy because we joyfully follow. Um, we pray, Lord, that Tim and Vanessa and Mike would be um, a blessing to all that come for aid, Lord, that you would give them, you've already given them gifts of wisdom or they wouldn't be here, but Lord, we pray that you give them an extra dose of wisdom, that if somebody comes before them, they would have deep compassion and they would have deep wisdom for how to really help, Lord. We want to really help people. We, we, we don't feel stingy about funds. We give anybody funds that needs funds. But, Lord, we want to give our whole selves to those who are in need. And so we pray that we would give our time. We pray we would give our friendship. 
We pray that we would give our accountability, our rebuke, our admonishment, our instruction, all those things, Lord, that we would love well. So we pray for our deacons that you would help them to do that well. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by the ministry of Tim and Vanessa and Mike. Lord, we pray that you would be seen as the great defender of the poor, that you would be seen as glorious, that, that your church would show you to be the most generous and merciful and loving being in the universe. Lord, that this church would, would have a thriving ministry of the word and a thriving ministry of mercy, that people would know that you're merciful because your people are merciful. We pray, Lord, that you would bless these people and that you would help them to serve with all their might and with full joy and peace and wisdom and love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Well, that's really cool. We're just super thankful for you guys. That's really awesome. Been looking forward to this for a long time. I've actually been like, when are we going to do this? And they're like, well, you know, we want to have some more time to really do it. We want, you know, the body to really recognize that we are deacons before we're appointed to that. And I was like, oh, you guys are perfect. Okay, can we do it next week? And they're like, no, a few more months. And so it's happened. I want to close on this, guys. Do you know what kind of people are most likely to be generous to the poor? People that have been poor themselves. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed the people that have been rock bottom poor are the people that when they see somebody that's poor, they go, you know what? I know how that is. And so I'm going to help you. People that are more generous are those. You guys, your generosity to the poor, our generosity to the poor will be to the degree that we see how poor we used to be without Christ. That's what's going to make us. It's not going to be pity. It's not going to be paternalism as we feel kind of prideful that we can meet needs. It's going to be solidarity. It's going to be, I know what it's like to be poor. You know that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs are the kingdom of God. To receive the gospel, guys, you have to see yourself as poor. You have to. You have to be poor in spirit. You can't be middle class in spirit, right? Middle class in spirit is this idea of like, I can pay for myself. I don't need a handout. If I try harder, I can succeed. No. Spiritually, we need to be poor in spirit. We need to be bankrupt in spirit, right? There's two types of bankruptcy that are most common. There's chapter 7, which is you are not going to pay anything. You have nothing. You're done. You're closing your doors. It's over. You got to start over, right? And then there's chapter 13. Now, chapter 13 is a little more optimistic. I just need some breathing room. I need to maybe get rid of a few of these debts, but I could pay some of them or later I can make good on my debts, right? There's a couple different types. Guys, the gospel shows us it, we must declare chapter 7 bankruptcy, we don't pay God back later. You know, we don't like later on when we straighten our lives, we start to feel like, okay, now I can put a little bit back in. No, we come completely poor in spirit. The good news is, guys, for those of you who are poor in spirit, 2 Corinthians 8 says, Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's a way of looking at the gospel, right? That he made himself poor. Guys, all we bring to Jesus is our debt. It's a debt we can never pay. It's a debt that has earned us everlasting judgment in hell. Sometimes people go like, you know, I don't understand why hell's eternal if, you know, a person lives for 80 years, opposed to the Lord, and then eternity. Hell is a kind of debtor's prison. You guys know what debtor's prison is, right? You go to prison, and it's like, you can get out if you can pay it. When people don't get out of debtor's prison, right? Hell is like that. There's no way to repay our debt. There's no suffering that's going to repay a, a, a total um, hatred of God, a total turning from God, and not wanting to have God in your life. There's, there's no payment plan for that. And so we come to Jesus with a debt we cannot pay, guys. We cannot pay it. And Jesus saw our poverty, and he had mercy on us, and he left his riches. How rich was Jesus? Right? How rich was Jesus? King of the universe, happiest of all beings, 
lacking nothing he wanted, completely free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. That's what riches get you, right? Complete freedom. He had complete freedom. Fully able to live out all his purposes and will. Rich in every sense of the word. And when Proverbs says, guys, that God identifies with the poor, we see that literally happen in the Gospels. We see God identifying with the poor. When Jesus, the Son of God, when he came, he was born as a poor man, wasn't he? He was born in a in a stable, he was placed in a manger. When his parents came to offer him to the temple and give what they normally would give when a new kid's born, they gave the cheapest of offering, right? Because they couldn't afford a lamb. He was from a poor family. He was a poor man. He, he, it says he was a carpenter. That word is most likely laborer. It isn't like fine finished carpentry. This is a person that was a laborer every day of his life. He had nowhere to lay his head. Remember people going, oh, I'll follow you. It looks glamorous. And he's like, hey, the foxes have holes. You know, and the birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. You guys remember when he came right before, we're moving into the, uh, the week of uh, Palm Sunday and Easter and all that. Remember when he came to town, you remember where he slept? He slept out in the olive groves, right? This guy didn't have a place to, to lay his head. He's poor. Um, when he um, arrived in Jerusalem, he arrived on a borrowed donkey. When he had Passover, he had it in a borrowed room. When he was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Poor right? Identifies with the poor. When he died, he died naked. They gambled over his one possession, which was a tunic. And yet, that's not the poverty that Jesus really came to identify with, did he? The real poverty he came to identify was what 2 Corinthians says, on the cross, Jesus made himself poor to take on our debt of sin. It was a spiritual poverty they came to take on. And when he hung there on the cross, nailed to that wood, um, and, and having endured the full wrath of God on our behalf, and he, what did he say at the very end? He said, it is finished, right? We're to tell us die, which is a banking term, paid in full. Paid our, he paid our debt in full. He issued our jubilee, right? It's the place of complete uh, removal of our poverty. And when the Proverbs say, guys, that God identifies with the poor and he defends the poor, in Christ we see him do both. He identified with the poor, not the righteous poor. <laughs> we are not the righteous poor. We are the unrighteous poor. You know, we are in a situation completely due to our own sin. And yet he identified with us, and he defends the poor. He defended us not from outside enemies, but from the penalty of our own sin. Your sin debt, guys, your great sin debt that you could never pay has been paid in full. If you'll give it to him. The crazy thing is, is that we will not all give it to him. Not every human being is willing to give Jesus their debt of sin to pay for it and remove it. It's crazy, isn't it? If you're here today and you've not surrendered your life to Christ, what you're doing is you're saying, I will take this debt with me for the rest of my life and I will endure it for everlasting, you know, apart from God. Like that I'm just going to hold on to my debt. He wants to take it from you today. You know, he wants to take it from you today. So come and trust in him and it will all have been paid for by his own body and blood. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And we get everything that Jesus has and everything that Jesus is. That's true riches, right? It's awesome, guys. Having your greatest debt paid it will make you generous to the physically poor because you know what it's like to be poor. I want to read you a real brief section from Robert Murray McChain. He's one of my favorite Scottish pastors from the 1800s. I don't know if there are many. But he preached a sermon called... It is more blessed to give than receive, right? And it's from Acts 20. And he said this, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray day and night to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made over holy into the image of Christ. And he says, if you want to do that, you must do it through giving. 
He says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And then he answers a list of objections that his people would have to that. First one is, my money is my own, right? That's our first thought, right? My money is my own. Answer is, Christ might have said, my blood is my own and my life is my own. Then then where would we be, right? Second objection, the poor are undeserving, right? Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels, Shall I lay down my life for these? No, I will give my life to good angels. But no, he left the 99 and went after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Or another objection we might have, the poor may abuse it, right? That's pretty common. Answer, Christ might have said the same. Yes, and with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample upon his blood under their feet, and most would despise it, and some would make it an excuse to sin more. And yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christian, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the poor and vile, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ, listen to this, Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that awesome? The gospel, guys, will rock your heart and open your hand to the poor. Eugene Peterson said that the poor are not a problem to be solved, but a people to be joined. And in the gospel, we join them, right? You know, it's not about, you know, paternalism or pity or anything like that. It's solidarity. I know what it's like to be poor. I would love to help you, you know. Christ has opened my heart to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son to take the full penalty of all of our sins. And, um, and there's that. And then on top of that, the cross is this continuous resource, Lord, to, to change us. It's like every turn we have is... And the book of Proverbs is to live differently has been, the solution has been to see what your son has done for us, to see your love in Christ. And, and Lord, no different with this part. And we just pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more a generous people. I thank you for these people of this church who have been over and over again, super easy to lead and super consistently merciful. Lord, but make us more merciful. We can, make us excel in our love and care for the poor. Make us skillful in it. We thank you for these deacons that have been added to make us skillfully in it. We pray, Lord, have your way in our hearts. And I pray for anybody that's here that's just still holding on to their debt of sin. Lord, that they would come to you and see that you are the true God who gives true life and true freedom and true refreshment and true joy. We pray that they would do that today, that they would come to you, turn from their sin, and grab hold of you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.